Whoever tried to whistle, that was not very good. <laughs> um, I guess I don't need to introduce myself, but in case you didn't hear, my name is Chad. This is my first time up here preaching. So if you hate what you hear this morning, come back next week because Scott will be back up here. Um, and it could be my first and last sermon. And if you love what you hear this morning, come back next week because Scott will be back up here. Um, when I took this position at the church, there was three promises that I made. The first promise I made is that I was always going to be vulnerable and transparent with you guys. Whether it was students on Wednesday night or Monday night or up here on a Sunday, you guys were only going to get the real Chad. Uh, the tears, the frustrations, and as some of the students can attest to, the things that youth group that I probably should have left unsaid. <laughs> um, the second promise I made is that I was never going to preach at anyone. I never wanted to make anyone feel like I was telling them how to live their life, like I was preaching at you. My goal is only to share what the Lord is giving me. I feel like if the Lord and the Spirit is revealing something to me, it's too good not to share. And so I only want to share with you guys. And the third promise I made is that I always want to be relatable. Whether it's my story that I share with you guys, or if I'm ever up here on a Sunday or up here on a Monday night at Celebrate Recovery, I want what I say I want you guys to be able to relate to it, and I want to be relatable to you guys. Now, I think there's two places that we can find 100% relatability to whatever's going on in our lives. The first is the Word of God. When we open Scripture, it doesn't matter what we've been through or where we're at. There is something in the Bible that will relate to us in the here and now in our exact situation. I believe that. The second place that I feel we can always find relatability is Seinfeld. And so I have a video clip that I want you guys to watch. Bozo? No. B-O-Z-O. Sorry. I... You've never heard of Bozo the Clown? No. How could you not know who Bozo the Clown is? I don't know, I just don't. How can you call yourself a clown and not know who Bozo is? Hey man, what are you hassling me for? This is just a gig, it's not my life. I don't know who Bozo is. What, is he a clown? What, is he a clown? What, are you kidding me? Well, what is he? Yes, he's a clown! All right, so what's the big deal? There's millions of clowns. <laughs> All right, just forget it. Forget it? Me for you should forget it. <laughs> You're living in the past, man. You hung up on some clown from the 60s, man. Oh. Very good, very good. All right, go fold your little balloon animals, Eric. Eric. <laughs> what kind of name is that for a clown, huh? <laughs> I'm with George. Eric is a horrible name for a clown. So if you're going into that profession, choose a better one. Um, but just like George, so many of us get stuck in the past. We get stuck living in the past, and we can't see what's happening right in front of us. And that's what I want to talk about today. Today concludes our sermon series we've been going through about perspectives of the cross. We've been looking at different people um, the Roman soldiers, some of the disciples, and different people and their perspective of the cross in those three days. And today we're going to look at a couple believers that were inspired by the cross, or better yet, inspired by the events that transpired from the cross. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 24. So if you have your Bibles, um, open up to Luke chapter 24. It's going to be on the screen. We're going to start in verse 13. 
Um, usually on a Sunday, Scott preaches from the NIV version. Everything that I'm going to say is from the ESV because I choose to preach from the extra spiritual version. And so we're going to start Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Verse 18. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of, the, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So Jesus went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. He vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So we're going to take a look at these two guys who are on the road with Jesus and how them being stuck in their past prevented them from seeing their present and being ready for the future and how they found inspiration. You know, anytime we find inspiration, it's when we need it. We don't, we don't recognize that there's inspiration there when everything's going good. It's when we're down and out that we need that inspiration and that's when we found, find it just like these two guys. And they're stuck in their past. And I believe that before we can let go of the past, we have to understand it, and we have to put a name to it. We have to understand what happened, how it happened, why it happened, and we have to be able to name it. That this is our past, these are the sins that I've committed, or the sins that were committed upon me, and we have to be able to name it so that we can let go of it. Because if we can't name it, if we can't move on from it, we're always going to be stuck there. We're never going to be able to go on to the next thing if we're so focused on our past. And the next thing, the place that we're all trying to get to is the future, right? But there's only one bridge that gaps the past and the future. There's only one road that can take us from the past to the future, and that's the present. And these two guys on the road didn't recognize their present. They didn't recognize that Jesus was right there with them, talking with them. It says in verse 14, and 
Or no, they didn't realize that he was there talking with them because they were so focused on the past. It says in verse 14 that they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. They weren't talking about the things that were going to happen. They weren't talking about the things that were happening. They were talking about all the things that already had happened. They were stuck there. They were stuck in their past. But can we blame them for that? I mean, really, they're trying to figure out and put a name to what had just happened. These last three days of Jesus, the so-called Messiah, failing them. He's supposed to be the one to save us and redeem Israel, and he's dead. And more than that, it was our leaders that turned him over. It wasn't Rome, our enemy, that came and took him from us. It was our leaders, the ones that are the leaders of our faith, who he's supposed to save. They're the ones that put him on the cross and turned him over to be crucified. So we can't blame them because they're trying to understand the past. They're trying to put a name to it, and they can't. And maybe some of us are still there today. We're asking ourselves, why did that marriage end in divorce? Why wasn't I good enough? I tried so hard, but my spouse still had an affair. Why wasn't I good enough? What was so enticing about looking at porn in the first place? Because here I am, stuck with an addiction. It's disgusting. I can't, I can't help but look at it, and I don't want to. So what was so enticing about it in the first place? Or how did I find myself in that situation? How did I find myself surrounded by those people in that environment that 10, 15, 20 years later, here I am addicted to drugs when I know they're wrong, I know it's killing me. So how did I find myself in that situation? Or maybe we're asking why when it comes to death. Why did I have to bury my child? Or why, why wasn't I able to be raised by my mom and dad? Why did they have to be taken from me so early? Or what did I do to deserve that abuse? I tried so hard to be exactly who I thought I needed to be, but what did I do to deserve that abuse? Well, newsflash, you didn't deserve it, first off. <laughs> or maybe, maybe you're like me, and you've asked, how can the church, the place that proclaims the name of Jesus, how can they tell me I'm not welcome? How can they say, don't come here until you get your act cleaned up? You don't belong here. How can the church say that? We're all trying to let go of the past. We're all trying to understand it so that we can move on to the future. But we have to want to change our present in order for that to happen. Because you see, if we're so focused on the past, if we're so focused on everything back here, the sins, the decisions, all these things that have happened, then they become our present. They become what we're still focused on, what's controlling us and guiding us today. And so our past is now our present. And we have to want to change that if we're ever going to be, if we ever want to move on to the future. So how do we change it? You know, when Jesus asked them what they were doing, what they were talking about, it says they stood still looking sad. And isn't that us when we're focused on the past? We're just standing here, not moving, with our heads down. Oh, woe is me. This, this is the hand that I was dealt. This is just how my life is supposed to be. This is who I am. I'm never going to be able to change that. And we just stand still. We don't even try and go around our problem to get to a better place. We just stand still. Why? Why do we stand still? Why can't we move forward? I think in most cases, it's for the same reason that these two guys couldn't. It's because they forgot Scripture. When Jesus was talking with them, he says, you know, you forgot all these things that had happened. And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us as the scriptures were being revealed to us? They forgot all the things that they had been taught, 
all the things that were going to happen according to Scripture, all the prophecies about Jesus, they forgot it all. They forgot Scripture, and so do we. And when we forget Scripture, that's when we get stuck in the past. And when we get stuck, we're okay with existing there. We're okay with saying, this is the hand I was dealt, this is where I'm going to be. And when that happens, we miss out on life. And we miss out on life in abundance. John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came so that they may have life and have it abundantly. Right? Life in abundance is a promise of Jesus. And if the enemy, if the thief wants to steal my future, if he wants to kill my potential and destroy all the promise that I have, all he has to do is keep me focused on the past. All he has to do is keep me looking sad, standing still, focused on my past. And we do that because they forget Scripture. We forget Scripture. In verse 25, it says, And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They forgot what they learned, and so do I. I forget John 10.10 10 and the promise of abundant life. I forget Isaiah 1, verse 18, where the Lord says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Jesus is saying, come, let us reason together. Let's have a conversation about this. All these things of your past that you think define you, that you think are holding you back, that you think have to make up the rest of your life, I'm going to wipe them all out. The sins that you've done, the ones that have been done to you, they're, they're gone, they're erased. It is a fresh start. Everything is white. And if you're obedient, you're going to eat the good of the land. And I don't know about you, but when I eat the good of the land, that looks like living an abundant life to me. That looks like Jesus fulfilling his promise of an abundant life. But it's when I obey. I forget verses like Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why should I forgive him? Why should I forgive him for that night? Doesn't he know that I got the free tickets to the party? Doesn't he know that I knew the owners and the bartender and I'm the one that got us all the free drinks? Doesn't he know that they were my drugs that we were taking? I, I made this night possible, so why should I forgive him? He's the one that got too drunk and just kept talking and talking. He's the one that when we were waiting for a cab out front at the end of the night just wouldn't shut up. It's his fault that we got in a fight. It's his fault that we're in the middle of the street on Colorado Avenue on New Year's Eve with traffic shut down at 2 in the morning and that I had punched him so many times in the face that I broke my hand. It's his fault that I had him by the head and was about to slam him into the concrete when my buddy pulled me off of him. Yeah, my best friend since 6th grade, that night was his fault. Why should I forgive him? Because it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the Son of God. If I want to be called the son of God, then I better be a peacemaker. But then why, why should I offer forgiveness to her? It was her fault that she was passed out drunk at the party. And plus, I'm not even the one that took advantage of her. Yeah, I didn't stop it from happening, but that's not my fault. I was so high on so many different drugs, I wasn't thinking straight. Why should I offer forgiveness to her? 
for the, for the pain that she's had to live with and the shame and the embarrassment. Why should I offer that forgiveness? It wasn't me. I wasn't the perpetrator. But I didn't stop it from happening. Even if she does think it was me, I know the truth. So why do I need to offer forgiveness to her? Because I want to be called a son of God. And to be a son of God, I have to be a peacemaker. You know, both those situations I just told you about are things that have happened in my life. The first one, I've been able to go to my old friend and offer forgiveness and receive forgiveness. But when I did, it it took two years later. I had to get sober first. I had to find Jesus first. And when I went to him and I told him I'm sorry and that I hope he can forgive me, he said, man, I'm sorry that that you've been holding on to this for so long. I forgave you a long time ago. And in that moment, I realized, wow, here someone is that doesn't claim to be a Christian. They're acting more like the Son of God. And I realized that when I forgive someone, it's not for their sake. It's for my sake. When I forgive someone, it's to set me free from the past. It's to set me free so that I can move into my present and be ready for my future. When I forgive someone, it's naming my past and saying I'm done with it having a hold on me. So we have to name it. We have to move into the present. And to do that, we have to name it. And the best way that I know to start is to be a peacemaker. And the best way that I know that I need to be a peacemaker is remembering scripture, remembering the things that I've learned through God's word. If you're like me, you're like, how can I even begin to memorize scripture? It's so much. There's no way I can have it come to memory when I need it. And if you're like me, you're like, oh my gosh, all the years of drug abuse, my memory is shot. There's no way I can remember scripture. So where do I even start? Well, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, is a great place to start. It keeps it simple. And that's what we do every single Monday night at Celebrate Recovery. We recite parts of the Beatitudes. We recite parts of Matthew 5. And the reason it's such a good place to start is because you can memorize scripture one line at a time, without taking it out of context. You can remember, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the son of God. Well, I want to be a son of God. That's the what. Well, well how do, why do I do it? So I, I, I'm a peacemaker. That's how I do it. And when, when Jesus gives us that, when he says, hey, if you want to be called a son of God, you need to be a peacemaker, then I instantly know how to be a peacemaker. Oh, I want to be called the son of God. I need to forgive. I need to offer forgiveness. When we get those two things from Jesus, the what we need to do comes to us instantly. When we get the how and the why, he gives us the what. And so we have to remember scripture. It's important, you guys. Get into the word. Write it down on a three-by-five card. We have to remember scripture or else we're never going to be able to name the past and move on from it. But at the same time, we can't lose hope. We have to remember scripture and we have to hold on to hope. We need that hope, and everybody around us needs that hope too. First Peter 3.15, it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. It says be a reason to share for the hope that is in you. It doesn't say for the doctrine. It doesn't say be prepared to give a reason for the theology you have, for the condemnation or for the judgment. It doesn't say be prepared to give a reason for the religion that you have. It says be prepared to give a reason for the hope because that's what people are starving for. That's what we're starving for is hope. Where would I be if I lost hope after three days? Where would I be if I would have lost hope 
after three days of battling drug withdrawals? Where would I be if after three days of practicing a silly Katy Perry dance, I had lost hope? I wouldn't have met Jesus that night, and I probably wouldn't be married to my wife. Where would I be if after 36 hours of my wife in labor with our son, I had lost hope? I wouldn't have been able to be there with the strength to get us through the last two hours. So where would you guys be if you lost hope after three days? You're better than that, and you're stronger than that. So hold on to the Word of God and the promises that come with Scripture because time and time again, that with Jesus Christ is where we will find our hope without fail, is in the Word of God and the promises that come with Scripture. All right, so we want to change, right? We're ready to say the past is that. It's just the past. I want to move on from it. I'm ready to name it. I'm ready for, to forget about it. I'm ready to move on to the future. What's the next step? How do we do it? I'll tell you what we do. We stop. We sit down and we have a meal. Here in Luke 24, Jesus is ready to keep going. But these two guys say, no, stay with us. We're tired. The day is far spent. There's nothing else that we can accomplish. The day is over. It's been such a long day. We've walked seven miles and we've been receiving all this information of, of what happened and trying to process out these last three days. We need to halt, is what they're telling Jesus. And these guys are brilliant. If you've ever been to Celebrate Recovery on a Monday night, you might have heard the word HALT and the acronym. And if you haven't, I'm going to share it with you. HALT stands for hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And anytime we're getting ready to make a decision that could be potentially life-changing for us or someone else, or anytime we're trying to decide what to do with all this information we just received, like these two guys, they just had all these scriptures revealed and like, oh, but it's just not working out. What do we do with all this? We need to halt. And we need to ask ourselves, am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I lonely? And am I tired? If the answer is yes to any of these, then we need to take care of it right then and there before we move on. You know, if you're like me, when you're hungry, that means you're automatically angry. In my house, we call that hangry. And if I walk in at the end of the day and I'm just talking about how, oh, this person this, or these people did that, or oh, I'm going on and on, I am not allowed to get offended when Bliss gets a box of Captain Crunch and a gallon of milk and just slides it in front of me. She just walks out of the room. She's telling me, halt, you're hungry, you're angry, you need to take care of that. And that's exactly what these guys did. They were hungry, they were tired. They've been walking seven miles and they're processing out possibly the most devastating three days of their life. They're, the so-called Messiah failed them. Have you guys ever done that? Have you ever sat down and processed out the most devastating days of your life? At Celebrate Recovery, we call that a moral and spiritual inventory. You sit down with some paper and you write down everything that you can think of in your life. The good, the bad, the ugly, the people that have hurt you, the people that you've hurt, the people that have loved you and the ones that you've loved, the ones that have inspired you and led you and the ones that you've done the same for, you write down everything. And it's exhausting. When I, when I did my inventory, I went up on the mountain on the back of Pikes Peak and I sat around a campfire for two days. It was probably the most intimate time I've ever had with Jesus and his angels and I was just sitting there writing and writing and writing. A, 
If you're anything like me, a couple sheets of paper is not enough. You need to bring one, two, maybe three notebooks. I was writing and writing and writing. In those two days, I just sat around the campfire and I didn't move more than 10 feet. I was writing here, I was making coffee here, I was laying down here, like literally I didn't move more than 10 feet and I was exhausted. I was absolutely drained after that because I had just been processing out everything in my life, the good and the bad. So when I was done with that, when I came off the mountain, I went home and I slept and then I woke up and then I ate and I was like, oh, that's over with. And I was like, no, it's not because I can't process these things alone. You know, all year we've been talking about how we're better together. I cannot process out the most devastating days of my life alone because all I'm going to hear is the condemnation. All I'm going to hear is the guilt. So I had to go to my sponsor and share everything that was on those 13 pages, front and back. You guys got to find someone that you can process it out with that's not going to judge you, that's not going to condemn you, and that's going to meet you with love. That's what I found in my sponsor. Um, piece of advice, I wouldn't go through your inventory with your sponsor at Starbucks. Um, that's what I did. I don't know, it was about, it was early in the evening, 5 o'clock maybe. We went in and Starbucks was full, like Starbucks always is. But I have a loud voice, and when I started saying the things that I had done, by the time I turned to page three of 13, Starbucks was empty. <laughs> and I was like, huh, all right, well, at least someone meets me here without judgment and condemnation to say, hey, I understand. Hey, I've been there. Hey, it's okay. We need to find people to process this out with. So, you know, so that's what they did. They had just been processing out these three days. They were trying to name the past. They had walked seven miles. And they sat down, they went in and sat down at the table. And it says that at the breaking of the bread is when they realized that it was Jesus who was with them. And how they remembered their hearts burning within them while he talked to them and while he revealed the scriptures. It was in that moment, a moment at the table with the Savior, that they went from being dead in the past to instantly alive in the present and ready for the future. They were filled by that meal that Jesus served them. And we can be too. It was right then and there that they got up. It says in the same hour they returned to Jerusalem, remember seven miles away, to share how Jesus first showed up, how he spoke truth, and how he revealed himself to them. You know, I don't care that much about the scripture that you have memorized. I don't care that much about how good of a communicator you are. I don't care that much about the spiritual gifts that you have. I don't care about any of that as much as I care about how Jesus has shown up in your life. I want to have that one-on-one -on -one intimate conversation with you where you say, this is how Jesus showed up. Where you can't help but go back seven miles and share with everyone around you, this is how Jesus showed up in my life. Because when you do that, I get hope from that. That's where you find your hope, is where Jesus has shown up. And that's what we need. I need the hope. You need the hope. Those around us need the hope. And when we do that, when we realize that Jesus has shown up, we realize that he was there with us in the past, in the midst of our hurts, habits, and hang-ups, in the good and the bad of our marriages, he was there at the funerals that we've sat in or the funerals that we've had to plan. 
the fights with our spouse when we've come clean about our porn addiction, about our affairs, about our drug addiction, about our eating disorders. He was there along that road. When all those things of the past held on so tightly to make them our present, he was there. And he stuck it out. He was there. He stuck it out. He's here with us at the table. So how dare we think that when we stand up from the table to walk away from our past, that Jesus won't be there with us then? How dare we think that he won't be there when we get up and walk away from our past because he's been there all along. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to have a time to stand up, come to the table, and walk away from our past. The band is going to come play two songs. And this this response time is going to look a little bit different than it normally does on Sunday because this time is when we're also going to take communion. We have four stations set up. There's two on this side and two over here. You see these tables with the trays. There's a cracker and a cup of juice, the elements of communion. At any point during these next two songs, I want to invite you to come up and take communion. If you're a believer of Jesus Christ, I invite you to come take this meal. Now, maybe, maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you can't say that he's the savior of my life. Well, I'm going to give you that opportunity. Maybe you're sitting there and there's burning inside of you. That's Jesus revealing himself to you just like he did to these two guys on the road to Emmaus. And he's saying, come, I want to share this meal with you. So I'm going to be up here anytime during these next two songs. I'll be here. Scott will be here. Anyone will be up here. And we would love to pray with you as you accept Jesus as your Savior, and then go to take this meal with him. You know, there's a Swedish word. It's pronounced fika. It looks like fika, but I did the research. It's pronounced fika. It means a coffee break with pastry, but always with friends, coworkers, or family. You can see this picture here. This is my family around the table at my house. One side is my side of the family. The other side is my wife's side of the family. Four generations of our family sitting around that table. That's what Jesus is inviting you into right now. John 14, 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. We get to share in the works and the ministry of Jesus Christ. That means we are his co-workers. John 15, 15 No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. He's inviting you to come to the table as his friend. And Ephesians 1, 5 through 7, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave all of our sins. That's what he's inviting you to right now. He's inviting you to the table. Jesus hung on that cross, and he said, You are loved. He said you are valued. He said you are priceless. And I don't care what you've done in the past because you are family. 
It was the oldest living relative's responsibility to redeem or buy back those that had been cast out from the family so they could come and live under the Father's house again. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He said, I want you to be family, so I'm going to redeem everything. All those things that have, hold, that have held on from your past, I'm going to redeem it all, I'm going to wipe it all out, and I'm purchasing you back. So Jesus is here today, and he's saying, my children, my brothers and sisters, come, stand up, walk away from your past, and take a seat at the family table. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the Oh, yeah.